Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Courtney Zoffness. She is the winner of the Sunday Times Short Story Award, an Emerging Writer Fellowship from the Center for Fiction, and many other prizes and fellowships. Her new book is Spilt Milk, which is published by our good friends at McSweeney's. Courtney, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Courtney, my first question uh, before we dive into the meat of your book is about how your book is designated. It is subtitled Memoirs, and I don't think I have ever seen that designation on a book. I've seen essays, short stories, etc. But why memoirs, Courtney, and what does this mean in regards to your collection? This was a pretty late stage recommendation um, by my publisher, uh, and it's kind of a memoir in essays. I know there are all these subgenres within nonfiction. Um, I think that um, this book holds together kind of as a, a narrative on its own. And the word memoirs to us denoted um, the personal nature of the material. I think there are a lot of kind there are lots of kinds of essays, and these are pretty personal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. Now let's dive into your first essay, which is titled, The Only Thing We Have to Fear. And I want to talk about a line on the first page of this essay. And this line, uh, from the perspective of your narrator, is, quote, Mommy and Daddy would never suggest you do something that's a bad idea, I say. And I wonder if that is true, end quote. Uh, Can you tell us about this line, Courtney, and what it means in the context of this memoir? So this um, memoir emerged almost entirely after I became a mother, or I should say when I became pregnant, and then after I became a mother twice over, uh, as these things sometimes go. Uh, And the first essay, The Only Thing We Have to Fear, is about watching my firstborn develop what I thought at the time were signs of an anxiety disorder, one that I had when I was a young child, and one that, you know, sort of stalked me into adulthood. Uh, And um, it was an exchange we were having about, um, I can't even remember the context, but I was suggesting he do something that he was afraid of doing. And I said, you know, mommy and daddy would never suggest you do something that's a bad idea. But, you know, parenthood is all a guessing game in a lot of ways. Certainly, I wouldn't knowingly ever put my children in harm's way, but you make suggestions all the time and hope you know, things turn out well. Uh, And uh, this book does deal on a larger scale so much with the limited control one has as a parent and the high hopes one also has and the conflict between those two notions. Yeah. And what is a bad idea when you're a parent? I mean, obviously, like you want to tell your kid, don't jump off a bridge when everyone else is jumping off a bridge. It's But, you know, could it also be a bad idea to steer your child towards being a doctor or a lawyer if they really want to be an artist? I mean, how do you even negotiate um, what is a good idea and a bad idea as a parent? Yeah, I that I can't answer. But I will say in the context of 
what I explore. I think sometimes you have good intentions. For example, I grew up with pretty overprotective parents who had a lot of rules and restrictions designed to protect us. But for me, as a sort of had a, had a vulnerable constitution, it had the reverse effects and it made me afraid of everything. Um, so, you know, what is a good idea and bad idea? I, I don't think it's imminently answerable, but I, I think it's a valuable question to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Courtney. Um, you mentioned anxiety, and I want to talk about the anxiety that the child in this first memoir um, is feeling about going into the first grade. Uh, my son, Van, is currently in first grade. Uh, what is it about first grade <laughs> different from starting kindergarten from a child's perspective? What about it do you think causes anxiety? Because my son felt the same way. Oh, that's interesting. I don't necessarily know if it's um, specific to first grade. I think at our local New York City public school, in kindergarten, you escorted the kids up. I think in first grade, there was a little more independence. Like you, I can't remember exactly, but either I led him to the door and he went in himself, or I just led him to the stairwell and he went in himself. And something about, you know, the the more, the additional independence and um, the reduction of parental, you know, participation in that process was a little bit scary making. I think um, it turns out that son does not actually have an anxiety disorder, though he did demonstrate a lot of symptoms that like had my own, you know, mind churning and, and fears roiling. Uh, and, and I think that was just a moment at which he was expressing them around something that was big and unknown. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I'd always wondered if it was something like, well, kindergarten is the thing they've become accustomed to. And then there's this new class to go to. And and who who knows? But um, yeah. thanks so much for that answer, Courtney. Let's now talk about the second essay, which is titled, uh, or the second memoir, which is titled Hot for Teacher. Um, first, for our listeners, can you explain this title in the context of you being a teacher and what happened here? Sure. This is um, an essay about uh, a teaching experience I had pretty early on in my career. In addition to being a writer, writer, I'm also a professor. I was teaching at an East Coast college, which is not where I currently teach, uh, lest anybody makes that assumption, uh, and had given my students a writing exercise, a prompt, which was to respond to the line more than anything they wanted. Uh, it was an attempt to demonstrate how desire and obstacles to, uh, you know, meeting that desire are what can create propulsive fiction, because um, we were a creative writing workshop, um, and then went around the room and students read their first lines, and the aim was to demonstrate the wide breadth of ways in which desire can create drama more than anything. She wanted a drink of water more than anything he wanted um you know, to seek revenge. And then some student in the back row, and this was pretty early in the semester, um, read the line more than anything he or she, uh, he wanted, uh, and proceeded to read a very breathless, long paragraph about the, about the ways in which he wanted to take me, his teacher, atop the desk in front of the classroom and have his way with me. Yeah, thank you uh, for that answer. Um, how, as a creative writing teacher, as someone teaching 
artistic expression. Uh, does one draw the line between something to be alarmed by, to alert authorities to, and something that is a person's artistic expression? It's very complicated. Uh, I think that one was pretty plainly about me. He described me physically in ways that resembled me. He described an outfit I'd worn the previous week, uh, although he did, you know, proclaim to the department chair, but I changed the class from Tuesdays to Thursdays or I, some inane change, which, you know, had him aghast, like, what, is, what have I done wrong, which is its own category of concern. Uh, in terms of what materials should, you know, raise a red flag, I would say little. Um, to be honest, but I also think, and this I think also has to do with being a, uh, a woman in the front of the classroom. I have a certain kind of, I'm on a certain kind of alert already. I have certain kind of radar, I hope, already. Uh, I, you know, teach a range of, of texts across the inflammatory spectrum. I do think literature is meant to provoke. I, I have a disclaimer on some of my syllabi. I think in particular for nonfiction where I um, talk about not writing um, alarming material just to alarm, like the difference or, or provocative material just to provoke the difference say between, um, you know, a nude portrait versus pornography, right? There's a way to um, to render provocative material artistically, and there's a way to just render provocative material for shock value. Uh, I don't think even the shock value, um, you know, line of thinking is necessarily a red flag, but I think that's at the beginning of the conversation um, of what may lead a reader or a teacher in this case to um, start to develop some concerns. I think it's um, it, it can be a dangerous line to toe because I believe deeply in freedom of expression, but I don't believe in hate speech. And in these days of rampant school shootings, I think being cautious is important. Yeah, absolutely. And this story rang a lot of bells for me when I was an undergrad, you know, maybe two decades ago or ish, give or take. Um, I was in a creative writing workshop where, you know, even then school shootings were huge in the news and alarm and a, a kid got removed from the workshop, deservedly so. Um, well, let's talk more about this essay after the break. But for now, listeners, we're going to pause for a word from our sponsors. And then I will be right back with Courtney Softness. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Courtney Zoffness, author of Spilt Milk, which is published 
by our good friends at McSweeney's. Uh, Courtney, back to your essay or your memoir that we were talking about before the break hot for teacher. Um, can you tell us about the moment in this essay, Courtney? Um, it's a flashback scene and you first get the sense that other people may feel like your body doesn't belong to you. And to elaborate on that, can you contextualize that by talking about uh, what has happened in the Supreme Court recently with Roe versus Wade? Sure, that's a big question. Uh, I mean, I could talk about it in the context of the essay, which is that in writing through my response to that um, incident, I noticed in myself, and this is what I think essays can be really useful for as writers, um, but as readers, I love to consume them too. Uh, I noticed in myself that I um, was kind of dismissive, that like a little, of course, in front of the classroom, I was alarmed and made really awkward and tried to, you know, assert authority uh, as best I could. And then on the train ride home was like, maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought and was really ready to dismiss it. But of course, I reread it and all the drivel that came after it. And, you know, of course, it was atrocious. And he was removed from my class. Uh, I think um, the process of thinking about my own relationship to how, um, you know, misogyny has played out just in my own life. It was kind of an amazing writing exercise, how quickly I could just associate from this to this to this and the like proliferation of incidents I'd experienced, small and large, um, the ways in which I had been touched against my will, the ways in which I had, um, you know, just endured all manner of gnarly things at the hands of men um, without consent. And my, I, I am lucky, I should say, um, many women have it far worse. Uh, and so this is not at all a woe is me um, essay. It is more demonstrative of the the ease with which, uh, or, the, or the ways in which uh, it is normalized for so many women and how I, it's just like neatly interwoven into the, the background of my life. And that many of these incidents, which are inherently disturbing, were not even ones that I thought all that much about because they, I, they just, happen so regularly. Uh, I think um, the overturning um, of Roe v. Wade is profoundly upsetting and disturbing uh, and demonstrative of the ways in which um, so many men in this country do not understand what it means for a woman to have her own, uh, be able to make her own decisions about her own body um, and rather want to control women's bodies themselves. Yeah, and all of this is magnified um, in a negative way, uh, as you mentioned, when you have a, a former president now who is, um, you know, obviously is not respectful of women's bodies. And, uh, you know, we have the leaked conversation, where, uh, which I won't repeat, but um, which you talk about in your essay. I want to ask you at the end of this essay, there is a moment where your uh, young son is with the young girl posing for a photograph and the people around are chanting, kiss her, kiss her. Um, and he does, but maybe the young girl 
didn't want him to. Uh, can you talk about the struggle in America specifically of being a mother to a young man in this current political landscape? It's a, you know, a topic I think a lot about. I have two sons and I, one of my priorities as a mother to the extent I have any control over how they grow, develop, you know, think, uh, is to ensure they understand what it means to be respectful uh, and to understand the importance um, of consent. Uh, and nonetheless, I think um, young boys are still acculturated in a variety of ways to um, behave in certain ways, a la, you know, mass cheers for him to kiss her and not her to kiss him, which I, I think on its face is, while, you know, pretty banal, just uh, seems evocative of so many other ways in which um, the boys or the man is um, imposing himself on the girl or woman. Um, you know, that essay ends with her eyes wide open. I don't think she didn't want it. <laughs> that sounds really bad. There, she was, she, she's, was three or four. They were just being playful. Just the image, though, that a photo captured, to me, um, reading it through an adult woman's eyes, uh, spoke much more loudly than whatever that moment may have signified for either of the kids. Uh, and I also felt, because it was a very, it all happened very quickly, and I didn't intercede, and um, and I think that's often how these things happen. It, it again, um, sort of spoke to the limita limited quote unquote control I may have as a parent and the ways in which society will continue to act upon my sons without um, my permission. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's something that um, my wife and I think a lot about too. And it's, you know, as parents in, in this environment, it's, and as intellectuals, you're just like hyper intellectualizing every parental decision. And um, yeah, how can you not? Um, well, let's move on to the third memoir uh, in this collection, Holy Body. Um, in this memoir, you draw a line between studying literature in college and growing skeptical of organized religion. How does studying literature um, or just the act of being in college in general or both uh, lead one or lead you to become skeptical of organized religion? Well, I think... Um, college was the first time I was living on my own. I was uh, a residential student. Uh, and until that moment, you know, had to go to synagogue with my parents. <laughs> uh, I was raised Jewish and, you know, participate in various traditions because they were um, part of my family culture. Uh, and when you're on your own and then a holiday rolls around and you get to make a decision, uh, I think you start to ask yourself what you care about. You know, it's sort of like the segue into adulthood uh, in some way. Uh, I, I don't attribute my reading literature necessarily to my growing skeptical. I think it was maturation and um, reading all kinds of things and having, you know, your sort of classic cheesy college conversations uh, about existence on in, in this life and on this planet. Um, but, you know, I, I just... I didn't, um, those conversations didn't diminish the importance of Judaism to my identity. Uh, they, but I did just 
ask myself whether or not I even believed in God and whether I even cared to answer that question, uh, which is where I still am. Yeah, thank you. And how does this memoir work to reconcile your relationship with an old friend who became a devoutly religious person? And how can your respect for her inform the views that you as a parent impart upon your children? Well, I will say, um, and just speaking of her life choices in particular, not everyone who becomes um, especially observant as a Jew, which is all I can really speak to, she is um, has a really beautiful, I think, and open um, relationship to her own spiritual practices, does not proselytize, does not expect anyone else to behave the way that she behaves, uh, is very progressive in her own beliefs, even um, when there are, you know, factions within the religion that don't align with those beliefs. Um, so I think um, I admire actually the way she has um, found faith to be of, of use and value to her, even if that's not the case for me. And I don't feel at all, um, I don't know. I think there are there are some folks who are are deeply religious um, who are in my life who I feel kind of judged by, uh, and that is not at all how I feel um, about her or with her. Absolutely, thank you so much, Courtney. Um, finally, I want to ask you about the next essay. Uh, it may end in. Aleppo and listeners, as is necessary with um, collections such as Spilt Milk because of time constraints, we've only been able to cover about uh, a little over half of this collection, but please pick this book up. I promise you that you will agree it is a very important collection of memoirs. Uh, but Courtney, in this memoir, you refer to a Nabokov story, which refers to the idea of living in a fantasy narrator fears uh, that he cannot do so or he may commit suicide truth this poet narrator feels is the way um and my question for you courtney is is this viewpoint true of most people do you think or do you think people prefer to live in a fantasy uh, and may be driven to you know madness by truth or neither or both this seems like a loaded question in our country at the moment, um, where I think just basic facts like that grass is green have are suddenly being contested. Uh, I I mean, I think I can't speak for how most people like to think. Um, I think most people like to think that their truth is the truth. Um, but it's incredibly troubling to me and incredibly problematic, um, period that there is no common denominator or that seems to have been eroded massively. Um, and I will, you know, point directly to our former president for contributing to that. Um, it's, it's mysterious to me how easily, um, and how wildly, um, that truth slips away from from so many people who I had long seen as as pretty grounded in a reality that I shared. Um, 
So I don't think people prefer to live in a fantasy, even though it seems so many do. Uh, I think we all like to think that our truth is true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Courtney. And thank you so much for writing this wonderful collection of memoirs. Listeners, I've been speaking with Courtney Zotnis, author of Spilt Milk, which is published by our friends at McSweeney's. Courtney, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for all your work uplifting authors and books. Once again, I would like to thank Courtney Zotnis for joining me. Copies of Spilt Milk can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook to support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.